Were you a bad kid growing up? I was. I was a very bad kid growing up. I was in, in kindergarten, I was in the principal's office so often that I had my own chair there. I had my own office in the principal's office. In grade one, I pickpocketed my teacher at least once, maybe more. They blend together. And substitute teachers, those were the best days when substitute teachers came because that's when you know you'd never see them again and you pull out the worst stuff possible. And so I would orchestrate several catastrophes at the same time in the classroom. I would tell my one friend, okay, over there in that corner, you're going to start juggling scissors. I don't know how to juggle scissors. Not my problem. You over there, I want you to clutch your chest and pretend you're grasping for air. Okay, and I have a couple more things. Teacher would walk in, bang, and they would all happen at the same time. It was beautiful. Back at home, I also got in a lot of trouble. There was a few years where I never had dessert with my family because I never made it that far into the meal. I would get sent from the table, and for many years, I never tasted the, the sweetness of, of cookies and ice cream and all those good things. Eventually, I got tired of timeouts. I got tired of not having dessert, and I started to curb my behavior. I stopped doing the bad things. I started doing more of the good things, and life got more comfortable for me. I got more recess time, got more desserts, got to stay up later. It was cool. Later on in life, I brought that dynamic, that relational understanding into my relationship with God. I thought, okay, God is like the ultimate parent-teacher figure. He says, do this and don't do this. And if I obey the rules, he'll be happy. I'll get to have the eternal recess, the eternal cookies, if you will. He's like the cosmic Santa. I got to keep God happy. And so I would hear in Sunday school, I would hear in church, vacation Bible school, everyone would say, Jesus loves you. And I would think, okay, I hear you, but does, does Jesus love me after yesterday? I, I did some pretty messed up stuff. Or after le- last week was kind of a record-breaking week in terms of uh, misbehavior. Does he still love me? Or is he kind of waiting for me to get my act together and then Jesus will love me again? And it gave me a lot of stress. It gave me a lot of worry, just always wondering if I was doing enough to keep Jesus happy. And I bet some of you know what that feeling is like. You know that worry that you're not doing enough, that you're not being enough, that you need to keep your behavior up enough, keep the ball in the air, keep Jesus happy, if you will. Different question. Do you remember when you broke free from that cycle? Do you remember when you understood Christianity for the first time, when the penny dropped, when you actually understood the truth behind all of this? Some of you, that's going to happen for the first time today, and it's going to be fantastic. So today we're looking at answering a question. We're looking at answering this question. How can I be confident that I am right with God when I feel like I haven't done enough? How can I be confident that I'm right with God when I feel like I haven't done enough? And I'll tell you the answer in advance. How can I be confident? It's because faith is greater than works. This is what we're diving into today. So if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're actually returning to our Roman series. It's, it's been a while. Uh, we started the new year. We started 2021 in the book of Romans, and we worked through it all the way up until Easter, and we took a break because at Easter we saw how God reconciled us to himself, and one of the implications of this is that we're also reconciled to one another. And we went through a, a series about this called Finding Common Ground all the way up until Pentecost. 
And then we did another three-week mini-series with Pastor Ken from out west, and he talked about rhythms of life of the believer, rhythms of work, rhythms of prayer and Sabbath. And so it's kind of been these concentric circles. We started in Romans, looking at time and God and eternity and redemption, and we looked at a, a smaller concentric circle of this in rhythms of life amongst believers and in their culture, and we looked at the smallest circle of this in rhythms of life within the individual believer, and today we're expanding back out. We're returning to the book of Romans. But please don't think that because we're returning to the book of Romans, we're not talking about, you know, like applicable stuff anymore. We're not talking about practical things. This is just nerdy theological stuff. That's completely not the case. You're probably going to learn one of the most applicable things in your entire life today. So, to give a brief introduction, I'm not going to summarize the first three chapters, I'll just give a couple points. In Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul is making this case that humanity is in trouble, that things are broken and things need to be fixed. Does anyone disagree with that? No, this past season has made that very clear, if it wasn't already. All right, now an implication of this is that we are also broken. We're in need of redemption, we have a sin problem, and because of that, we are justly recipients of God's wrath. Makes us uncomfortable. I'm not getting into that today. Now, Paul is saying we need redemption. We need justification. We need to be saved from this. But we need a redemption. We need a righteousness. We need a right standing with God that isn't dependent upon how well we can keep the rules. Because we're already... uh, in trouble. We've proven, we've proven ourselves incapable of that. So in chapter 3, he makes this very bold claim. He says, <clears throat> For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. He's talking about this new way of having right standing with God, not based upon what we do, but a righteousness, a justification, a right standing with God based upon faith in him. And this is very contentious. This would have been very controversial to uh, his recipients of the day. So in chapter 4, Paul is just explaining this. He's giving an illustration. You know how in a sermon the pastor will talk, 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 and then they pause and they give an illustration, they tell a joke, they tell a story, they show a clip of a movie or something like that. Paul's doing something like that. He's saying, hey, if this is true, I can prove it to you. I'll give examples from the past. So this is what we're looking at in Romans chapter 4. Would you... Read with me, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. underlining the important words that we're going to return back to later. Continuing in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So let's break this down. Paul is opening up chapter 4 with a hypothetical question. He says, hey, what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to what he did? What did Abraham get out of what the good, I can't talk. What did Abraham get or receive from the work in his life? And he says, well, if he was justified by works, he's got something to boast about. But he can't before God. 
What does the scripture say? And now Paul is quoting Genesis, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and that and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his actions, it was his belief in God. Let me give you a very, very quick backstory on Abraham and his relationship with God. So Abraham, when he was about 75 years old, 74 years old, he was in Ur, you are, it's basically Mesopotamia. And God came to him and said to him, hey, Abraham, I want you to get up and leave. Leave everything. Where am I going? None of your business. I want you to get up. I want you to leave your extended family. I want you to leave your property. I want you to leave your prosperity. Get up and go. That in and of itself is a lot to ask. It's hard to get a 75-year-old man out of a chair, let alone asking him to to restart his whole life. 75-year-olds, do you want to restart your life right now? I, I don't think so. I don't want to. I'm 25. So Abraham gets up and he goes. He responds in obedience. And God says to him, I want to bless the world. I want to make a great people out of you who will be a blessing to all the nations. Abraham says, God, I don't have any people of my own. I have no family. I have no land. God says to him, no problem. And in Genesis 15, he says to Abraham, step out of your tent. Abraham steps out and God says, look up. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the night sky. He says this to a 75-year-old man. He and his wife have no children. And how does Abraham respond? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So even in this interaction, In this one little verse, who's doing the heavy lifting here? Who's saving the day? Who's doing the work? Who's blessing the world? Who's providing the offspring and the land and the nation? It's not Abraham. It's God. God's saying, Abraham, I want to make a great family out of you. Abraham says, I've got no people. I've got no land. I've got nothing to give. God says, I know. You've got no land. You've got no family. You're not a blessing to the world. But I want to bless the world through you. Will you let me... Be for you what you can't be for yourself. Will you trust me? Will you follow me? Abraham says yes. And if you keep reading in chapter 15, something incredible happens. God says to Abraham, let's make it official. Prepare a blood covenant. And that sounds freaky, and it kind of is. A blood covenant, I'll summarize this very quickly, is uh, basically how agreements were ratified in the Old, uh, Old Testament, just kind of in the near Middle East at that time, they would take animals, cut them in half, slice them and dice them, and they would place them piece by piece, almost forming a row or an aisle. And between the two people who were making the agreement, usually the, the lesser of the two, so if it was like a king and a citizen, the citizen would walk down the aisle in between the pieces of meat And they were actually signifying, they were acting out what should happen to them if they should fail to keep their end of the bargain, if they were unfaithful. They were saying, let me be slain and discarded like these animals here if I should prove to be unfaithful. That's how the blood covenant worked. Now, here's the crazy part. Abraham prepares this. He prepares the ceremony, but he doesn't walk through. God appears... And God travels down the aisle. He takes Abraham's consequences upon himself. He says, if my people whom I want to make through you should be unfaithful, let I 
bear the consequences. Let I be slain, let I be discarded like these. And what happens? Are God's people faithful? Are we faithful? No. And that's why Christ comes, as the ultimate covenant ratification. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. But all of this is happening right there. All of this here. Abraham's being pointed out. Paul's saying, do you remember this? Abraham was saved, not by his doing, but by trusting in God to be for him what he could not be for himself. And he gives an illustration of this. All through the book of Romans, Paul's using all these metaphors, these different types of language, to try and explain what God does for us. So he talks about redemption. Redemption is language from the slave market. He talks about justification. Justification is legal language. He talks about propitiation and atonement. This is temple language. Now he's going to use financial language, accounting language. He uses this example. Hey, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, God, who justifies the ungodly, that's us, his faith is counted as righteousness. So probably you get paid every two weeks. And when you do so, you get an email or a little pay stub. You get notified that you've been paid. When this happens, do you sit down and write a letter to the accounting department? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for these funds. I appreciate it. No, you probably see that and you say, it's good they paid me. If they didn't pay me, there'd be trouble. They are doing the bare minimum. But what about when you get a gift? If someone out of the blue, without any earning of your own, gave you a huge sum of cash or a wonderful gift. If someone said, use my cottage for a week, no problem, on the house, what would you do? You would thank them. You would think, I do not deserve this. Thank you so much. Abraham did not earn his right standing with God. Paul uses accounting language to say this. His faith is counted as righteousness. In some, in some translations, it says credited. It was deposited to him. Some say reckoned as well. Abraham was credited with a righteousness that was not his own, that was not earned by him. Was he deserving of this righteousness? Well, if you know some background on Abraham, if you've been around church for a little bit, what do you think? The answer is no, very quickly. Let me give you some juicy details. Abraham twice tried to give away his wife. What? Yeah, they were going through a foreign land. The king saw his wife, Sarah. He was attracted to her. Abraham thought, uh-oh, uh, this king's going to take me out to get my wife. So he said, ah, hi, that's actually my sister. She's all yours. And he did that twice. Ladies watching, is that a mistake you would give your husband the opportunity to make twice? No, you, you do that once and that's it. Uh, here's another example. Right after this, Right after Abraham says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. On the same page, Abraham and Sarah think, okay, God's going to make a great people out of us. Um, Sarah says, I'm barren. Uh, it's not looking like I'm having kids anytime soon. Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar and she can have your child for you? Abraham thinks, you want me to go impregnate a younger woman? Hey, if that's what you want, if this is how I can serve the family, so be it. And now... Hagar gets pregnant. What happens? Baby mama drama. You got an older woman and a younger woman, someone with no kid, someone with a kid. Things get tense and it gets worse. Sarah actually miraculously conceives. Now you've got two children, Sarah's son, Isaac, and Hagar's son, Ishmael. And the question is, who 
is the child of the prom child of the promise. Who is the promised child? <laughs> well, it depends who you ask. Islam, Muslims believe that Ishmael was the bringer in of God's new covenant, but Jews and Christians believe it was Isaac. So did Abraham act perfectly? Far from it. We're actually still feeling the ripple effects of his unfaithfulness today. But that's a whole other can of worms. I don't want to get into that right now. So you see here, without belaboring the point, that Abraham was far from perfect, but he trusted in God to be his righteousness. Paul is showing here, to summarize this, that when we put our trust in God, we receive something that we did not earn. When we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, we are credited with righteousness that is not ours. So, for you watching today, are you trying to earn God's favor? Are you trying to earn your own righteousness? Are you trying to be your own righteousness? Are you trying to be your own God? How's that going for you? Do you uh, try harder? Are you stuck in this cycle of trying to do enough, of trying to be enough, and then failing and falling and getting discouraged and exhausted, and then you fall back headlong into the sin that you were trying to avoid in the first place? Maybe a little bit while later, you get some more motivation, you get inspired, you try again, and you fail and fall again. And you think, God, what's the point? I can't even do this. Why am I trying? That's exhausting. I've been there. Can I tell you that there's a better way? For the Christian watching this today, have you fallen back into this pattern? Are you trying to maintain and earn this thing that you received from God? Are you trying to earn something that was given to you? Are you burning yourself out trying to just, you know, clench your teeth and white knuckle your way through this and maintain this behavior that will keep God happy with you? Do you see how silly that is? I, I say this in love, but do you see how it's silly to try and earn something that was given to you? Paul is saying here that Christianity isn't legalism, it's grace. It's not entitlement, it's gratuity. It's not owed, it's given to us. This is the first response to our question. How can I be confident that I'm in right standing with God even though I don't feel like it? Because good deeds can't earn God's gift. Good deeds can't earn God's gift. Now let's keep reading on in Romans. Paul is now going to address the other side of this point, the flip side of this. Let's read from verses 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, counts righteousness, apart from works. You know what? Let's just underline this whole thing. It's all good. And he quotes David. He's quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul is now establishing the, the negative side of this same point. God is establishing a covenant. He's building a family. And one of the purposes of this covenant is to deal with sin, to handle our sin problem. And so of the many gifts, of the many blessings that Christians receive, this is right near the top, that God deals with our sins in the new covenant that he makes with us. And the example of this, the, the person who's sinned and it isn't held against them, Paul's using David. 
David? You're talking about David? King David? The guy in the pictures holding the sheep and playing the harp? The giant slayer? King David? Had Israel in 40 years of prosperity and peace? King David? The guy who wrote half the Psalms? Pretty much all you sang in the early church were songs that this dude wrote? King David? He's the screw-up you're talking about, Paul? That's your example? Yep. Psalm 32, Paul's quoting from. What's Psalm 32 about? Bathsheba. What was that? Let me summarize very briefly. So, uh, David was the king of Israel, and he went out on his roof, and he saw Bathsheba bathing. She was actually cleansing herself, according to the, the Levitical purity laws. She's cleansing herself. David looks, he sees something he shouldn't have saw, he dwells upon something he should not have dwelt upon, and he has his servants bring Bathsheba to him in the night. And what happens? He sleeps with her. Now we can stop right there. Did Bathsheba have any means of consenting to this? No, not at all. A woman back then, a king back then, she had no choice in this. Call it what it was, that was rape. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child. Now, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was out fighting. He was out at war, fighting for a king who was raping his wife. And so what does David do? He thinks, I'm going to solve this. Um, I'm going to bring Uriah back. And you know, when a husband and wife have been separated for a while, their reunion will be sweet. And then there's going to be no surprise when Bathsheba's pregnant. People will think it's Uriah's kid. Okay? And so Uriah comes back from war. And you know what he says? He says, it would be so improper of me to enjoy my wife when my friends, when my fellow soldiers and brother in arms are away from their wives. So he does not sleep with his wife. What a guy. And now the plot thickens. Like this is, this is, this is like watered, uh, Game of Thrones is watered down life of David. Oh my word. And so what happens? David can either come clean and admit to his faults or he can have Uriah taken out and try and cover his tracks. So what does he do? He has Uriah put on the front line of battle and he orders the rest of the troops to pull back. And so he's killed. And so David, King David, let's look at this. He is a lustful, covetous, adulterous, raping murderer. And Psalm 32 is David repenting of his sin. It's him lamenting over what he has done and rejoicing in the fact of the God whom counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, this, using David, using this, this proverb, it's a great proof text, a proverb, it's a psalm. It's a great proof text. It also uses David, someone whom the audience would know. But here's the clincher. It uses the same word right here. Count. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 15, 6, which Paul quotes. It's also the same language that Paul is using. This word count. This is the financial accounting language. So for the person who trusts in God, the person whose faith is credited to them as their righteousness, their actions, good or bad, are not what determines their right standing with God. But if you look at this, you should you should be mad at this. You should think, but how? How does this guy not get what's coming to him? Look at what he did. He abused his power. He abused his citizens. He was unfaithful to his wife. Look at what he did to Bathsheba. Look at what he did to Uriah. This guy has to pay. He should pay. He should get everything that's coming to him. But look at that language there. 
he has to pay. Paying is financial language as well. When someone puts their trust in God, righteousness is credited to them. And when you purchase something on credit, a debt is owed. Credit is a form of a loan. This is how Abraham can be credited with righteousness that he did not earn. This is how David can be credited with righteousness regardless of the horrific things in his past. God in advance credits them with the righteousness which will be paid for. This will be paid for by his son's life. So to use this financial language again, Abraham got a massive deposit that he didn't earn. This is like you logging into your bank online and seeing there's stuff there you didn't earn. And in David's case, this is like you logging into your bank and seeing that your mortgage is wiped clean. There is no outstanding debt. No funds remain to be paid. So for the Christian, are you still held down by the power of your past? Does your sin still cause you shame? God does not hold that against you. Do you wonder if God's grace is sufficient? Look no further. His response is here. But God, what about this thing? He says, I paid for that. But God, what about my past? I've paid for that. But God, I've hurt this person so much. I've paid for that. But God, I I did it again. I've paid for that. I paid for that with my son's life. So this righteousness that we receive, it's not cheap. It doesn't come uh, easily. We receive it freely from God, but it came at a high price for him. It came at the price of his son. Hans Urs von Balthasar, a late Swiss theologian, he says this better than me. Christ's deed tells me two things. One, how valuable I am to him and how far from him I'd been. So Christian, don't make the mistake of falling back into this unbelief that God isn't able to handle your sin, that God isn't able to take on the sins of your past. Now, to the person watching this who's not a Christian, you're not a Christian, you're just you're tuned in for some reason, one way or another, do you wonder if God can forgive you? Do you wonder if God can handle your sins? You think, yeah, I hear that Jesus loves people. That's cool, but you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been doing. You don't know what I've been through. Would you turn to him? Would you turn to him today? Maybe there's the flip side of the same mistake. Maybe you're a non-believer and you're thinking, hey, I'd love to check out church one day. I'm a spiritual person. You guys have some cool music. You got some funny speakers. I'd love to check out church and all that. But before I do, I kind of need to clean myself up. I kind of need to get my my sins together. I need to get my life in order before I come to Jesus. Do you see how Paul is saying here, you can't work your way up to God, to his righteousness, and you can't sin your way away from God's righteousness as well. We are brought into a new family through this covenant. God has made a new people. And as this people, we are determined not by what we do, but by what God does. So, so far we've seen two things. Good deeds can't earn God's gift and evil deeds can't remove 
God's gift. How can I be sure that I'm in right standing with God? Good deeds can't earn your righteousness with him. Evil deeds can't remove your righteousness with him. So we're people marked by this new standing. Next question. Next point that Paul brings up. How do we live then? What do we do? How do I live now that I'm marked by God's righteousness through faith? Paul addresses this as well. Is this blessing, when he says blessing, he's talking about righteousness. Is this right standing with God? Is it then only, you know what, let me try that again. That's going to annoy me. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That's probably the first thing you were wondering as you were going through this. (laughs) For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Cool, we know that. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness, there's that word again, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before, there's that word before again, he was circumcised. So Paul's addressing this question. Was Abraham in right standing with God? Was he credited with righteousness before or after the circumcision, before or after the external manifestations and symbols of his faith. Paul says, well, clearly he received right standing beforehand and the external markings followed. And this kind of helps us address this question. If our actions don't earn us right standing with God, what's the point of them? And Paul addresses that here. So here's the takeaway here. There's there's probably two takeaways. The first is that Gentiles are also able to receive right standing with God based upon their faith and not based upon their circumcision at the time. Abraham was the first of this new family. He's the prototype, if you will. And God took him, set him apart, gave him right standing, and then Abraham began to transform himself and his life was marked by the internal transformation that took place. So there's there's an easy point right there. Outsiders are welcome in God's family. He did this for Abraham. He can do the same for you. People who don't come from good stock, people who don't have a rich religious pedigree, people who are unworthy of receiving God's righteousness are on equal footing with Abraham, with David, and the rest of us. That's the first takeaway. Now that he has received this right standing with God, his life will manifest this. So it's not the manifestation that is the righteousness, it's the manifestation that is more the evidence of the righteousness. Let me put it in tree language. The root will lead to the fruit, right? Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. You don't take fruit and staple it to a dead tree and say, wow, that's a great tree. No, the the actions, the external manifestations are a testimony to the internal transformation that takes place. For example, baptism. You aren't a follower of Jesus because you're baptized. You are baptized because you are a follower of Jesus. Do you see how that's actually quite the opposite, right? Baptism signifies 
the receiving of the Spirit, the washing away of sins, the death of the old man, and the new life in Christ. You aren't a Christian because you were baptized. We get baptized because we're Christians. That's an example. How about going to church? You don't, uh, you're not a Christian because you go to church. You go to church because you're a Christian. You're part of God's new family, and that's why you gather with the rest of his body to proclaim his greatness, to encourage one another, to do life. You gather with that family just like you would gather with any other family. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. You aren't a Christian because you're baptized. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you go to Christian schools and Christian concerts and you don't drink beer and you don't watch R-rated movies besides The Passion. You are a follower of Christ if you're someone who has chosen to put their active trust in Him for right standing. That He will be what we cannot be for ourselves. Do you love Him? Do you trust Him? Do you follow Him? So we've covered a lot of ground here today. But the main takeaway that Paul is trying to drive home is this. Faith is greater than works. Faith in God, trust in Him for His righteousness, is so much more powerful than any good thing you could ever do or any evil deed you could ever do. How can I be confident that I have right standing with God when I'm not sure if I've been good enough? We see this. Because you can't earn God's grace and you can't stop God's grace. Let's finish with these two points. The reminder for the Christian. Christian, you are not on a treadmill. Your life is not marked by trying to keep up, trying to match the pace, worried about falling off and getting off course, worrying about God's being uh, upset with you because you've screwed up a little bit. Do you know, Christian, the freedom that comes from trusting in Him for His righteousness? Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know that? Do you need a reminder of that? Do you remember that yoke? Are you familiar with the weight of Christ's burden? For the non-believer, you are not on a ladder. You're not in a position where you're trying to work your way up to God, and if you just do enough good things, and you can finally get into right standing with Him. Not at all. You're not on a ladder. You're in a pit and God is reaching down to you. We can't come up to him, so he came down to us. But God, I'm so broken. I know, I, I paid for your brokenness. But God, look at my background and my baggage. I know, I, I paid for all of that. But God, I feel so messed up. I paid for that. Will you trust in him for this today? Being made right with God was never about you doing enough, but rather trusting in him to be enough for you. Faith is greater than works.